It's not just COVID. There are other economic dislocations taking place in the current environment, and that that can create more risk. It creates more risk from mobile populations, refugee flows, but also the response of nation states like Iran and other nations to their own populations um, and their own frustrations. It is the week of March 22nd, and welcome to Episode 72 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. Today we have Lauren Dealey-Mahler, NSI Visiting Fellow, President of Dealey-Mahler Strategies, and former Director of Legislative Affairs at the National Security Council, Jamil Jaffer, NSI Founder and Executive Director, and former Chief Counsel and Senior Advisor to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow and the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Special Guest Rob Walker, NSI Visiting Fellow and Executive Director of the Homeland Security Experts Group. Okay, folks, we're two months into the Biden administration, and we have now had the first encounter uh, with the Chinese government in Anchorage, Alaska. Tony Blinken, Jake Sullivan went on our behalf. Diplomatic gauntlets were thrown down in front of the cameras. And well, frankly, it was a little boring. Uh, Chinese officials tried to mock our domestic political disagreements. They insulted our global leadership chops. Blinken and Sullivan pointed out that China, it turns out, has some real problems at home and around the world. But it was all pretty diplomatic. People spoke in complete sentences. There didn't seem to be any yelling. After the cameras left, evidently the two sides kept talking and, according to both sides, made some progress on some real issues. So, Rob, we've come to expect a higher level of drama in our international relations lately. Do you think the Anchorage meeting moved the needle for America's conflict-hungry political junkies? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you guys for having me on and pleasure to be here and, and all the colleagues on the panel. I look forward to the riveting discussion ahead. Um, in short, I, I think the political drama junkies are going to be disappointed for the coming short few months, at least. Uh, clearly from that incident, um, you know, and a couple of others that were we'll talk about later. The administration is getting its sea legs under it, but it's got some very uh, seasoned states people at the helm and we look forward to seeing how they can revert back to some level of normalcy. I was glad to see that uh, there were a few things called out from our side against the Chinese, notably the uh, treatment of the Uyghurs. And yeah, they countered with our own internal political turmoil, but I think that has nothing on, on what they do with, with the Chinese internal struggles. I hope we're back to some normalcy. Um, and I'd like to see the, the continuation of some of the uh, um, hardline uh, press against the Chinese. So, Lauren, aside from the fact that we proved we were able to conduct diplomacy in a non-clown show format, do we think this meeting served any useful purpose for American interests? I think it absolutely did. Um, one was the proving that we can do this in a non-clown show format. And I, I love that phrase. I think it is a fantastically PG rated version of what we normally call it. Um, for the last four years. So well done. Um, I think that, you know, while this may not have been a very exciting affair for the political junkies who, you know, have enjoyed watching random fireworks go off here and there for the last few years, I think uh, for the diplomatic statecraft junkies, it was quite exciting. I think that when you look at the traditional diplomatic dance, if you will, of countries interacting back and forth, it's it's usually very tactful. It's usually very genteel. It's a game of inches, not miles. And I think that when you read between the lines, the language that was used kicking off this event, yes, while the cameras were on for both sides, was not your traditional intro to 
a, you know, large bilateral meeting. So I think that both sides kind of ripped the bandaid off and, uh, you know, said, look, there's things going on here and we all know it. We may as well talk about it and not pretend like everything's fine. And then, you know, inch around behind the scenes. So I think that it it got it off to a different kind of start to sort of push through some of that charade that you generally see and actually let folks get down to business. Even if it was behind the scenes, that's that's where the good stuff happens. So Jamil, uh, Tony Blinken defended American political life. He said, we, we talk about our disagreements out in the open and we work on them and we get a little bit better. Seemed a little tepid to me. Uh, trying to defend democracy against top-down, one-party, authoritarian, near-totalitarian state. Did he miss an opportunity to just hammer the Chinese on Xinjiang and Hong Kong and Tibet and everything else? Well, look, I mean, I think that, you know, Blinken did take him to task uh, at some level uh, for what's going on with the Uyghurs. Um, He did criticize their human rights record when it comes to Hong Kong. And so, uh, but could he have been much more aggressive? Absolutely. Um, And could he have done so in a polite, respectful manner that would not have been Trump-like? Absolutely. And so I do think at some level, uh, we missed an opportunity. It's not to say that we weren't tough. I think we were. I think we were tougher than you would see the average bare Democratic administration, certainly tougher uh, than this team was under President Obama. So that's a good sign. Um, And so perhaps they have learned something from, as you call it, the clown show, and I think accurately called it the clown show of the Trump administration, which is that being tough, if you plan to back it up for real, being candid with our with our uh, adversaries is important. So I think they, I actually think they 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 did well in their first meeting. Could they have done more? Of course. Um, uh, you know, they're never going to be. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, it's a democratic administration. They're never going to be as hawkish or aggressive as I would be, um, or as a classic Republican president. Uh, not you know, putting aside Donald Trump, uh, would be. Uh, but I I note that also, you know, we saw follow up uh, just uh, just today. Uh, we heard about the launch of coordinated sanctions by the EU, Britain, Canada, and the U.S., um, with the EU starting with targeting four senior officials in Xinjiang um, and the freezing of the assets of the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps uh, Public Security Bureau, which is uh, that entity that essentially imprisons the Muslim population uh, there in the, in the Xinjiang province. And so I think that uh, there is, there's more to happen here. Uh, I think this was a good sign that the Biden administration is not going to roll over. At the same time, they could absolutely have been tougher, and and again, uh, not a missed opportunity, but one that one that could have been leveraged better to more uh, aggressive ends, certainly. Rob, Lauren, let me let me ask you, as our Democrat friends here on the podcast, after the meeting, Sullivan and Blinken said that the U.S. and China talked about issues of of mutual concern, including North Korea. They kind of hinted that we have the same goals for North Korea. I'm not sure that's really the case. Uh, China uses North Korea to distract us. They support Pyongyang. Without China, there is no North Korean regime. The Kim family would fall apart. We, on the other hand, are very worried about nuclear proliferation issues with North Korea, about North Korea destabilizing our allies in South Korea and Japan, et cetera. So our interests are really very different with North Korea. Are you at all worried that the Biden administration is kind of falling into the same trap of all previous administrations, including Trump, including Bush, including Obama, treating North Korea as an issue where we can actually work with China when, in fact, we're totally at odds with each other. What's your take? I would say that the one thing that we did see this time that I think is a little different, and I think it, you know, as you're saying, it's so early on right now, but gives hope for what we can see to come, was the emphasis and the coordination with allies from the region prior to 
the China meeting. I think the fact that it came on the heels of, you know, the grand tour meeting with, you know, our allies from the Indo-Pacific region and strengthening those ties and emphasizing those areas and those those relationships as as relationships that have always been strong but are being strengthened and are being emphasized in a more more public and more vocal way. I think that approach when you're with China, you're going to talk about North Korea. And of course, we're going to come out and say, yes, we're all mutually concerned about them because of course, that's what China's telling you. No one actually thinks that that's the case. But I think that rather than falling into the same trap and actually believing what they're saying, I think what we see is the, yes, that's nice. We all agree North Korea is a problem. Okay, okay. But here's what we're actually doing behind the scenes. We don't need to talk to China to be able to strengthen that that surrounding alliance. Rob, do you think we should be putting a little more pressure on China to kind of step up to the plate here and actually isolate the Pyongyang regime? Shouldn't shouldn't we be doing that in public also? Yeah, I I agree. We should be doing that in public. I, I liken uh, the North Korea problem to Wiley e. Coyote painting a, uh, a tunnel on the mountainside and Roadrunner goes through it every time, but then Wiley e. Coyote tries and he smacks his face into it. It happens with, as you mentioned, every administration, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, and now uh, perhaps Biden, we haven't seen yet. The trouble is that China's interests are probably much more closer aligned with North Korea's than they are our own. So what good will that public pressure do when they see that they have a puppet regime at their doorstep that they can handle and take care of? It's much, you can much like uh, compare it to Russia and Belarus. I mean, they're they're not inseparable in terms of um, one power controlling the puppet state. So I don't know that public engagement is going to help all that much. I do know that uh, the team in place in, in the Biden administration will work behind the scenes uh, without much fanfare. And as we saw with, um, say, the uh, JCPOA suddenly launched and came out and there it was, um, there wasn't much leaking going on. So if they're working on something on North Korea, I wish them the best of luck, um, but not sure that it will really come to anything as we've seen over the past, what, 25 years or so. Jamil, what do you think? Just count on these guys to work the, the good stuff behind the scenes or should we should we be demanding more? Well, you know, look, I, I share I share uh, Rob and, and Lauren's skepticism. I, I like the I like the analogy of Wiley Wiley Coyote. It's sort of like, you know, same same analogy, Lucy and Charlie Brown with the football, right? The Chinese um, everyone keeps teeing it up. I mean, Donald Trump most most sort of notably, right, really ran for the ball and completely missed it and fell on his rear end, uh, where he thought that he could get the North Koreans to agree to some amazing deal by sheer force of personality. Of course, that was not just idiotic, it turned out to be wrong. So I don't think the Biden administration shares the same sort of foibles. At the same time, um, I, I think that, you know, Rob makes a good point, which is that, you know, what does that solution look like? So Les, I think you're right. Okay, so great. We should put more public pressure on China to, to you know, push back on North Korea. What's the goal, right? Is the goal denuclearization de- de- of the Korean Peninsula? Okay, how are we going to achieve that? What's the realistic method of getting there from here? Uh, what kind of pressure would it take? Would it take the Chinese cutting off uh, the North Koreans? And if so, what happens when North Korean refugees flood across their border into China, which is exactly they're trying to stave off, right? I mean, I think it's a it's a nice idea um, that putting uh, putting more pressure on the Chinese would be effective. Um, and frankly, I don't I don't oppose it because I actually think that sending public messages makes a difference. Um, are we going to be able to move the needle? I worry we're not. Actually, I worry a lot more about what Rob is predicting. That in fact they are working on some backroom deal with the North Koreans, uh, another train wreck of a nuclear deal like the JCPOA. Um, and they're just going to set us back up for another failure. I mean, let's not forget the same people who negotiated the JCPOA, putting aside uh, Jake Phillips, Wendy Sherman, was in charge of the North Korean negotiations when they came to the 1994 agreed framework. So let's not put the people who were in charge of the first train wreck 
in charge of the coming train wreck again. Um, and uh, and so you know, look, uh, I think uh, I think North Korea is a hard problem to solve. I, I I don't have a good solution, so I'm not I'm not here to say, oh my God, the Biden administration's making a huge mistake by not by not going up ag- aggressive against the Chinese. But I don't have an answer to North Korean problem. Uh, what I know the answer cannot be is doing a deal like we did with the Iranians, which would just lead to more risk and more danger for the United States. Very good. All right. Let's turn to uh, another issue that was not necessarily discussed on camera, which is which is climate change. China is the, the biggest polluter in the world. They're dumping more carbon into the atmosphere than anyone else. Their rate is going up. They're building more coal plants uh, almost on a weekly basis. Our carbon footprint, on the other hand, is going down. The Biden administration has said this is an existential issue. Again, they have said we want to work with China on climate change issues. It seems to me our interests are not the same. They are, in fact, quite different. Is this another issue, Jamil, where we should just be trusting the Biden administration to work quietly behind the scenes for an agreeable solution and not to challenge China openly and in public? Look, this is actually one area where I actually think that we should be challenging China openly in public because we were already taking it on the chin, right? We decided to rejoin the Paris Accord, right? And we're going to come together with all these other nations to try and do the quote unquote right thing on on this important issue of climate change. Again, I, I'm not suggesting that climate change is not a thing. It is a thing. Uh, it's a problem. It's a, it's a national security issue. Uh, whether the climate accord is the right answer, I'm skeptical of whether that's the right approach. But, you know, not putting pressure on China to be a real player and abide by the commitments it's agreed to make and the commitments it should make and what it needs to do. I mean, if we ignore the China problem on climate change, you know, no amount of work by the United States and our allies is going to solve the problem if we continue to let countries like China continue to pollute. And so I'm heartened by the fact that the Biden administration has made this an important issue. I think it is an important issue. Uh, I'm not sure that their approach to it is the right one, but that's okay. They're allowed to have uh, their own perspective. They won the election, um, contrary to popular belief, or to some some people's belief, not popular perhaps. And at the same time, if you don't hold the worst people in the world on this issue accountable in a public, serious way, how can anybody take your commitment to climate change seriously? No matter how many times you sign up for Paris, you can sign up for another 15 times. It wouldn't matter if you don't hold China accountable. Lauren, Rob, what are you looking for here in terms of uh, climate as a priority for our conversations with China? What I'm looking for is what comes next. Uh, what I'm looking for was not to have all the answers in a you know initial two-day meeting with, here are the next steps, here's the way it's going to roll out, let's all go from here. I'm glad to see that it was mentioned. I'm glad to see that it was raised. I have to say, I'm glad to see Jamil so excited for us to be really pursuing climate change efforts and actions from countries around the world. I think, uh, I think 2021 is shaping up to be a banner year. But I think that what we've seen now is it's a start. It's a start. It's not everything. It wasn't all going to be mentioned, discussed, and resolved uh, in this meeting. So I like the fact that it came up. I like the fact that it was there. And I'm curious to see what comes next. Grant, I'm handing the baton over to you, pal. Great. It's been a little more than a year since the coronavirus really started rapidly spreading across the United States. So we thought it would be a great time to take stock and take a look back and see how COVID-19 has impacted American or national security interests abroad. So let's start at the home front. Uh, coronavirus has killed over 500,000 Americans. Tragedy for the nation, to be sure, uh, but also an unspeakable personal tragedy for many folks. However, last year also saw a spike in murders and the domestic 
anti-terror event that will have ripple effects for decades to come. Rob, how do you think the coronavirus impacted America's ability to protect the homeland? Well, first and foremost, I think it exposed um, some critical vulnerabilities in our critical infrastructure, in our readiness, in our ability to react to pandemics. Uh, we, we stripped the cupboards bare of our strategic reserves, of our stockpiles, and it also opened up opportunity for us to explore what we truly need to have in those stockpiles. Uh, who thought, you know, we need 4.2 billion in 95 masks available, you know, but now that's an exaggeration, but probably close to the real number that we need in stockpile. It also exposed a lot of things in terms of like our, our supply system. Uh, we recognize that uh, offshoring, while good for the bottom line and, and stock market, uh, is probably not the best idea in terms of how you're going to secure your population in times of critical need. So we need to relook at uh, how we're going to stockpile, how we're going to uh, onshore, reshore, or ally shore uh, some of these critical needs. And then finally, I would say that I think it's exposed a great depression in the country that we're not really talking about at a serious and strategic level right now. And that is the mental depression that we're all facing. Uh, you know, the, the, you mentioned the crime statistics going up. You mentioned, uh, well, I don't think you did, but uh, I would raise light to the idea of um, suicides and mental health problems uh, skyrocketing over the past year. And I think that's something that we need to take into account going forward. Of We've talked about a national policy on healthcare, and we also need to make sure that we're um, folding mental health care into that as well. Less moving a little eastward, let's talk about Africa. It was poised to really be a breakout decade for the sub-Saharan region. Uh, economic growth was rapid. The demographic dividend was about to pay out. How has the pandemic impacted those countries specifically? So it's a great question, Grant. Africa's been not at the forefront of the international response. Uh, the U.S. missed a huge opportunity last year to reach out to developing countries, particularly in Africa, uh, to help them deal with the immediate impact of the pandemic and the shutdowns. China kind of stepped into the into the breach, got some decent PR uh, on providing uh, PPP and other things uh, to countries that, that needed a little bit of help. We decided to send ventilators, uh, which turned out to be not a spectacularly great investment and perhaps a little bit of a waste. Maybe that was unknown at the time, but it was it, it, we really didn't help ourselves. Credit to the Biden administration for stepping in and supporting a bigger international affairs budget right away, reaching out to developing countries, uh, joining with global efforts to provide vaccines to other countries. Uh, there's a there's a concept of vaccine nationalism. I think you can take a little too far, but the U.S. should be playing a leading role, really the leading role in providing this kind of assistance to developing countries. It's a great opportunity for us. We led on very similar issues back during the Bush administration. George H.W. Bush called for the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, changed the entire social political dynamic in sub-Saharan Africa, saved a generation of people. We had the opportunity to do that last year completely fumbled it. It was a real missed opportunity for the United States. In terms of the actual impact for Africa, I think it'll be milder than people expect. Turns out Africa is a pretty resilient continent, generally speaking, kind of finds its own way to deal with things without a ton of uh, financial resources. So while I'm optimistic overall for the continent going forward, I really think uh, the U.S., particularly uh, last year in 2020, missed a huge opportunity to show some real leadership. So let's actually pivot off that. Lauren, you know, the Biden administration just announced that they 
they were joining for the first time COVAX, a, a global initiative to share the vaccine worldwide. But I think American leadership was shown to be really lacking last year at the international level, and it showed kind of a, a great weakness in international institutions, specifically the WHO, which was clearly unprepared to handle this. And with a vacuum in, in sort of U.S. leadership, what can we learn about our ability as a global community to deal with these larger problems if America can't be uh, counted on to always be in a leadership role? Well, I think that as we saw the U.S. over the last few years do so much to withdraw itself voluntarily from a leadership role on the international stage. It's not surprising that we've seen some of these challenges. It's not surprising that we have seen this this vacuum in leadership across these organizations. I think it has highlighted the need for other nations to step up and play a stronger role in some of these organizations, but I think it's also just highlighted how important it is for us to have that that position as well and to not voluntarily take ourselves out of the conversation that, you know, that was highlighted in a really unfortunate way when COVID hit. And I think that we saw the repercussions of some of those decisions um, in the way that certain organizations were reacting. But I think when something on such a grand scale um, occurs as it did, you know, with, with the pandemic stretching on every part of the world, not just certain nations uh, more than others, then I think it really is just going to highlight the weaknesses in any organization at any level. Um, you're going to see things that are exacerbated that may have just been minor challenges before. And I think that's been the case here. Um, so as nations have been struggling to both protect themselves domestically, but then also play whatever this role needs to be on an international stage, I think it's just highlighted the need for us to maintain that role and and to not make the mistake of, of taking ourselves out of it. Whenever we talk about American leadership, I always hear Jamil in my head saying something about Iran. So I think we should at least talk a little bit about what's happened to them during the pandemic. You know, Jamil, Iran was ravaged early by the disease. Multiple government officials became infected and died. However, the government's actions have been really atrocious. Khomeini has spread a conspiracy theory about a U.S.-created special version of the virus. The government has accused the Doctors Without Borders doctors of being spies. The government has banned the printing of newspapers. How do you think the virus has impacted the regime in Iran? And how do you think it's changed their foreign policy, if at all? Yeah, well, look, I mean, I think obviously the um, COVID pandemic had a huge impact, as you've described, on the regime itself. Um, huge numbers of the Supreme Council, um, the uh, the Iranian Majlis, which is their parliament, uh, and the like, uh, were infected with the disease. Uh, many recovered, uh, to be fair, um, but uh, but many were infected. Um, and, and it became a, a scandal, I think, of some sort within the nation. And not surprisingly, uh, the Iranian regime, as, as many of these more totalitarian-like uh, regimes do, uh, they tried to distract the people's attention, right? They um, uh, engaged in more aggressive activities outside of their own borders, um, conducting uh, attacks against the United States and getting more aggressive. Um, and it's not surprising. It was It's a totally predictable move by the regime. Uh, they began to repress their own people and try to distract their attention. And so, uh, you know, I think in a lot of ways, we uh, did ourselves a credit early on um, uh, in uh, 2020 with uh, with President Trump us resetting a uh, 
then President Trump uh, sort of resetting the red line uh, with Iran making it clear that we would enforce our will against them if uh, if they if they continue to attack the United States. Um, that being said, they continued to engage, as we've now seen uh, through the recent re- recently uh, released uh, uh, report from the House Director of National Intelligence, that they did engage in uh, in activity in, during our election. A lot of people scoffed at that when the Trump administration said that. Um, and again, perhaps as they should have, there were a lot of things the Trump administration said uh, that were inaccurate, particularly about cyber activities. But on this one, it turns out uh, they were not inaccurate. The Iranians were involved and engaged uh, in the 2020 elections, now affirmed by the director of national intelligence in a report out of their office. And so, uh, look, uh, I think that uh, it, it is uh, this will continue to be a problem. Uh, the COVID pandemic is not over. Uh, while in this country, uh, vaccines are spreading uh, more effectively, um, and we are we're getting heading to the, towards the point where people are feeling more comfortable. Um, in a lot of countries, uh, vaccine delivery is not nearly as widespread, including uh, as close as our next door neighbor in Canada. Um, but across South America and the like, uh, they continue to face challenges, uh, both economic and uh, and political. I mean, I think it's also worth noting that we're also seeing uh, food shortages um, around uh, the globe. And the last time we saw food shortages uh, at this level, uh, we had the Arab Spring. And so I think it's worth noting that it's not just COVID. There are other economic dislocations taking place in the current environment um, and that that can create more risk. It creates more risk from uh, mobile populations, refugee flows, uh, but also the response of nation states like Iran um, and other nations to their own populations um, and their own frustrations. And so um, I think we're likely to see the Iran regime continue to be aggressive. I don't think it's exclusive to Iran. I think that there are other nation states too that we'll see similar challenges with. We saw the Russians uh, in the past. They've lashed out when, when Vladimir Putin has been facing political challenges. He is and remains under political pressure at home. Um, and if that continues to ramp up, um, although his, his, his vaccine does appear to have some effectiveness, um, uh, the vaccine from the Russian, uh, Russian government. Um, I think that there may be challenges there. They may, they may be likely to lash out in Eastern Europe uh, and the like. And so I think that we continue to be in a fairly dangerous world. And I don't think it's getting better in the immediate future. I think COVID will continue to have an impact on that, as will other economic issues. Yeah. So let's let's sort of pawn that thread a little more. You know, we've we've seen a lot of uh, authoritarians do exactly what you were saying, Jamil, using this to to crack down on their populations, whether that's in Belarus, Myanmar, you know, Mali, maybe some others. Um, what do you guys think? Do you think that this is going to be something where, as Jamil was saying, you might see an, another uh, spring type of, of democratic uh, pushback? Or is this something that, you know, for the long term, we're going to have to deal with, uh, you know, pandemic era authoritarianism abroad? Well, let's not forget that uh, China used the pandemic uh, in, a, in a way as cover to roll into Hong Kong and start rounding up uh, human rights and democracy activists. We have we have to be on on our toes and looking for our adversaries and authoritarian regimes to take advantage of this situation. They live in the moment, uh, as as they've shown time and again, and are and are looking for any excuse to advance. Uh, nefarious causes. And we can't get too distracted by our own domestic politics, our own domestic uh, pandemic situation, and not pay attention to what's going on around the world. There shouldn't be an excuse for us to turn inward and ignore current events around the globe. We need, we still need to play a leading role. The world still needs uh, a strong uh, U.S. presence in a leadership role. As much as you know, we hear a little bit about our lack of popularity these days, we're needed out there. And uh, only the U.S. can gal- Galvanize international opprobrium in the right way against these exactly this kind of oppression and repression. Grant, I think that what we see with the increasing crackdowns and, and the 
sort of strengthening and rise of, of additional authoritarian regimes. It's the kind of thing that you expect to see when there is this level of economic and social disruption on such a scale. When you have populations who are already a little bit vulnerable, who are now even more so, then it just creates fertile ground for the the strengthening of these regimes for the excuses for the crackdowns for the for the things that allow them to further cement their hold over a country so whether it leads to something similar to what we saw with the arab spring remains to be seen um i think a, a lot is going to depend on how the vaccine spreads takes hold is you know, distributed among these countries where the the environment is more ripe for that type of a situation. Um, but I I agree with what we've been saying. This is this is something that we have seen as a indirect result of the challenges that COVID has created. What do you guys think are are some other long term implications for this? I know we've talked a little bit earlier about sort of a, a reshoring of the supply chain. Um, Lauren, I, I know you were just mentioning that, you know, all this is to be expected, more refugees, more authoritarians. Are there other things that we're not talking about or aren't in the headlines that are going to be long lasting impressions from the coronavirus? My perspective, one of the things that I expect to see more of, and this is a little bit intangible, but I think overall we're going to see an increased volatility on the global stage. We're going to see an increase of Things that you don't expect, didn't predict, aren't falling into the classic nation state security foreign policy sphere. Um, I think like we were just talking about with the, you know, the rise of authoritarian regimes and potential backlash to that among various populations and places around the country. When you have food shortages, when you have economic crises like this um, and all of this going on at the same time as sort of massive social upheaval in different places. Um, I think the just general unpredictability of the future is something that is one thing we can count on. I agree with uh, with Lauren that we'll see uh, more instability um, and more um, black swan type events in the international arena uh, coming out of this. But I think uh, in particular, it sort of goes back to one of the things, one of the things I think that's going to happen, goes back to one of the things you were saying, Grant, which was this idea of reshoring. I think that, you know, we have seen an era largely informed by free trade um, and and flow of both people and resources across borders. I do think that uh, the reshoring trend in America is not the only place you're going to see this. You're already seeing it happen in Europe. Uh, and like as everyone realizes that their dependence on global supply chains has made them more vulnerable um, at times when uh, borders may close um, and they may need to rely on their own resources. And so I think that you will see uh, sort of a walk back of the traditional um, you know, sort of free trade uh, environment and, and more protectionism, uh, more focus on domestic audiences and domestic needs. Um, and, and as a part of that, investment in domestic uh, uh, production uh, and the like. And so it's not just the U.S. Uh, where you'll see this happen. You're already seeing it in Europe. I think you'll see it around the globe. And the Chinese are sort of on, on, on a dual trend, right? They're, they're both uh, building out their capacity at home, but also going abroad to identify both markets and, keep, and places to places to, to increase their leverage. And so uh, I think while the U.S. and other nations turn inward, uh, the Chinese are focused both internally and externally and can do both. They can chew gum and walk at the same time. And, and that's going to be a real challenge, I think, for us as we look at 
the potential for great power competition with China. Yeah, I'm worried about the thing Jamil is talking about, which is an increased government role in the economy. I, I worry that this administration is susceptible to that argument that somehow uh, over-regulating, over-nationalizing, over-taxing or under-taxing our industries is going to get us to a better place in the competition with China and will lead to a better result for the next pandemic. I think the exact opposite is the case. Uh, it's the free market that saved us at the end of the day. It was American pharmaceutical companies, yes, working with a customer in the government, but it was American pharmaceutical companies, for-profit companies that actually developed the vaccines that are going to save hundreds of millions of lives. Yes, I'm, I'm not joking, Jamil. Hooray for capitalism. I hope we have learned that lesson. I, listen, listen, I believe in capitalism, but I'm not sure you're, of, of the, all, the, all the excuses you might pick, all the things you might pick. I'm not sure this is the best argument, right? I agree with you. Keynesian economics is crazy and dead, and anybody who supports them should be had their head checked. But vaccine, not sure you have that story right. Tell me what government developed a vaccine that we're using here in the United States. Oh, no, no. But we spent, <laughs> we committed billions and billions of dollars to the effort in order to incentivize the companies to do their, to engage in that, that market-based activity. And we're going to learn the wrong lesson, which that it was the government role, not the private sector role. That's exactly what I'm worried about. So Rob, last word on this. Yeah, so last word on this, thank you, uh, is it's not just authoritarian governments that are having trouble with their, their rollout and their, uh, their reaction from their populace. Look at uh, what's happening in the EU right now. Uh, you had several countries um, you know, on their own uh, canceling rollout of the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. Um, and then the EU central medical officer coming back and saying, no, it's safe. And then there's still sort of a push-pull effect uh, going on between um, the countries and, and the EU central committee. So I would say that, you know, democracies didn't get it right. Republican governments didn't get it right. Uh, author authoritarians are having trouble. So I, I think it's a just a broader, um, you know, population upheaval of all of us having more information and not getting what we want right now, um, striving to find out, you know, where, where the right answer is. So keep your eye on that space too. Oh yeah, join us every week as we continue to track these trends moving forward. But now we've come to the time in our show where we talk about the things that we're following in the news that maybe don't get covered as much as they should. Let us go first to Lauren Dealey-Mahler. Yeah, so this week the House Foreign Affairs Committee is looking to vote on whether or not to repeal one of the uh, authorizations for use of military force, the AUMFs, that have been governing the executive branch's counterterrorism operations um, for the past 20 plus years around the world. And some say they're outdated. Some say we shouldn't still be operating under authorities that were related to the attacks on 9-11 or the invasion of Iraq. Um, others say we, we need that authority. They're going to be tackling the questions of whether or not to repeal, to replace, to adjust, um, and um, hopefully come out with something on the other end that still keeps us safe. There's a lot of pitfalls. There's a lot of different uh, parties on different ends of various spectrums across uh, both the House and the Senate to have opinions on this, and some agree, some disagree. So curious to see um, how that plays out. It's one of the, the first, the effort has been ongoing for uh, for years now, but this is the first time that it seems to have a, an actual bit of momentum behind it. So we'll be watching to see how that plays out. Les, what are you following this week? 
So at the risk of speaking ill of the dead, I've been tracking uh, the news from Tanzania that President John Magafuli has passed away. He was a terrible leader who appealed to the worst instincts of Tanzanians. He was virulently anti-gay rights. Uh, he was very pro-engagement with China. On COVID, he urged Tanzanians to go to worship to get rid of the virus rather than adopt sensible public health practices. His departure is an opportunity for a new start for Tanzania. I hope that the U.S. and other responsible members of the international community will step up to the plate uh, and will be there for Tanzania as hopefully it makes a turn in the right direction. Rob, what are you thinking? Uh, so going to cheat here. This is being covered a lot, but I'm particularly interested in it. That's the border situation. Uh, I wrote a blog piece on this for the NSI SCIF. Uh, plug for another one of your products there, Grant. Uh, but uh, I, I'm curious to watch the um, the strategic messaging congeal uh, from the administration. It's been a bit mixed for the past several weeks. Uh, it seemed to be a little more consolidated this past weekend with uh, Secretary Mayorkas hitting the Sunday shows, uh, Ambassador uh, Roberta Jacobson and others coming out a little more strongly on the on the administration's position. Still, there is the problem of uh, capacity and how are we going to deal with that? They're they're saying now that only unaccompanied minors are being let through. Um, I just want to watch for the next couple of weeks to see if uh, words are being followed by action. Jamil, what are you following this week? So we had the uh, announcement today of a proposal by Saudi Arabia to end the conflict um, in with the with Yemen's Houthi rebels. Um, uh, the the Houthis predictably have uh, have dismissed the proposal as nothing new and requiring for negotiations to start for the for the Saudis to completely lift their blockade. Um, that seems unlikely. At the same time, um, this is the first time the Saudis have really uh, suggested that they're going to uh, going to uh, engage in serious conversations. Uh, to end the conflict. Uh, not clear that this is a positive thing for the region um, or for the people of Yemen. Uh, the Houthi rebels are not are, are not the most hospitable uh, uh, rulers of the regions that they control. Uh, they are also uh, supported uh, significantly by Iran, which has its own interests in the region uh, to cause trouble. Um, and so not necessarily a win for the United States. At the same time, uh, this is one of the most devastating conflicts in terms of humanitarian uh, impact uh, over the last uh, few years, including as compared to the Syrian civil war, which itself was a hu massive humanitarian disaster. Uh, the U.S. Uh, under President Biden uh, recently withdrew support for Saudi activities in Yemen. Um, and uh, as a result, uh, there, there's increasing pressure on the Saudis to, to, to do something to resolve this conflict. So uh, from a humanitarian perspective, uh, potentially a positive development uh, from a regional stability and political dynamic. Uh, and for the people of Yemen, uh, who have suffered under a longstanding uh, civil war. Unclear how this plays out in the long run, uh, but it appears at least at some level the Houthis will retain some amount of control, including potentially uh, over the capital, depending on how, how negotiations go with President Hadi and his government. Great. Uh, so this week I'm following the recall of Anatoly Anatov, the Russian ambassador to the United States. This is a major step for Moscow and came as a result of President Biden calling Vladimir Putin a killer. Uh, President Biden's statements came at the same time as White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that Russia would face consequences for their interference in the 2020 presidential election. This is a refreshing change from the Trump administration. However, we have to move on to those consequences quickly. With the new start extension in our rearview mirror, there's very little between us and the implementation of a robust strategy for pushing back against Putin. So I'm watching to see what comes next, and I don't expect to see the Russian ambassador back in D.C. anytime soon. 
That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we're doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Zach Varda for research, and Lester Munson for hosting. And Grant Haver for producing and directing. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines. 